Hey everybody, this is RJ, the host of Achieve Great Things. We're back with episode 6 after a bit of a summer break. Uh, you never really get a break, but um, it was a summer break of sorts. This episode we're going to bring you an interview with Ryan Bell, who's a Fulbright National Geographic Fellow, and who's also a writer and photographer and storyteller, um, who brings us some really interesting perspectives on international journalism, international reporting, and also um, he encourages us to think a little bit outside the box when we're communicating. So I think you'll like this this episode. You'll you can see Ryan's profile at ryantbell.com, and we'll include some links to some of his work. Um, after this episode, you'll be hearing a little bit from from my boss, the president of Hadaway, Doug Hadaway, who will be taking the helm for a couple episodes, including a, a conversation with a former client who talks about how her organization took an aspirational approach to their brand and how it transformed their work and made them rededicate the organization to the mission, um, which is focused on fighting poverty. So we think that'll be interesting. We have a lot more in the pipeline as well. So we uh, we hope you enjoy this and uh, please send us your thoughts, feedback, etc. And we will um, we look forward to hearing from you and talking to you more. And um, thank you for listening. Enjoy this conversation with Ryan Bell. All right, I'm here with Ryan Bell. Ryan, where are you calling us from today? I'm calling from Winthrop, Washington. Okay. Um, I know we're going to talk a little bit about your background and, and some of your work. Um, we got connected through um, mutual connection with the Fulbright program, and I, I know that at this point you're a Fulbright National Geographic fellow, right? Is that um, is that one of the many things that you're up to? Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of the title I have through the Fulbright program, but uh, I'm a freelance journalist, um, and I work with National Geographic, uh, NPR... Columbia Journalism Review, and as well as some other um, nonprofit organizations, and in their communications. Cool. Um, yeah, and we'll we'll link to a couple of the things that you've been um, that you've worked on that I've that I've read and listened to. Um, really good stuff. And I think you know, for our audience, we're a communications related podcast, and and a lot of what we talk about is about you know communicating in the United States and and a lot of things that are going on here. And I think it'll be interesting to talk a little bit about um, international work and and communicating outside of the country so we'll get to that but first i know that the the fulbright experience has sort of um, informed a lot of your work did you start off as a as a fulbright scholar yes so i i got my fulbright really as a vehicle as a funding mechanism so that i could go do a reporting project Uh, i Mm -hmm. needed to i've been working on a long-term um it's kind of an immersion journalism um, project in Russia since about 2010. And so in 2015, I wanted to do some follow-up reporting. And uh, I realized that the Fulbright program would be a good way to, to get funding for that trip. Uh, they have a kind of a, a small sub-program that's in partnership with National Geographic. And this is specific for, for storytellers. So I was able to apply for that, uh, and that's what took me over to Russia. And I added Kazakhstan as a as a second country to go to, because uh, the project encourages multiple countries uh, for the reporting. Cool. And what was your what was your original intention with that um, project? It's a look at so my specialty as a as a as a writer and a photographer is to look at food and agriculture. Uh, and also kind of where agricultural spaces bump up against wildlands and mm-hmm. just kind of the environment. So that kind of takes a bunch of different shapes. But uh, kind of my deepest knowledge is in the ranching world. And so some sources had tipped me off that uh, back in 2010, there was the beginning of a movement of 
uh, U.S. ranchers and cowboys partnering with Russian farmers uh, to start up cattle ranches over in Russia. And this was a, a food security initiative started by the Russian government. Um, at that time, and, and also still currently, they spend a lot of money importing food. Uh, after the collective farming system broke down with the collapse of the Soviet Union, and, you know, Russia just wasn't really ever able to get their industrial food complex back up and running. And so their idea was to bring over some people who could help out with that. And in the case of their cattle industry, actually bring over cattle. <laughs> mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. I went in 2010, actually worked as a cowboy on one of the first ranches uh, and wrote about it. Um, and then so in 2015, when I wanted to go back uh, to see, you know, well, what became of it? You know, did it grow? Did they build, uh, you know, were there now steak restaurants? Were there grocery stores with beef in it? Um, and also, you know, what shape did that industry turn out to be? Is it, you know, did they adopt best practices of ranching? Did they turn into worse practices of ranching? You know, just a whole bunch of questions I could only find out by going back later. Nice. Um, and I know, like, because you, um, you know, are a storyteller and a, and a journalist, you probably think about, communications and how how that plays a role as i said we talk a lot about domestic um, u.s issues here what kind of what kind of communications like how does how does communications play a role i guess in the in some of the stuff that you worked on over there through fulbright my reporting um so my reporting would go out both on national geographic's website and then also on a fulbright partner blog and then from there, a story would be picked up. And I realized early on, especially those Fulbright blogs were being used as communications materials by U.S. embassies in a whole bunch of different places. They'd put it out there and say, wow, look at this interesting thing the, about Americans and Russians working together to start farms. You know, I, th I think we all know kind of what the political backdrop is here. So this is kind of a surprising story. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, it has a feel good vibe to it. Um and so it was being used to kind of create, a, I don't know, maybe a more nuanced picture about the current events. You know, at, just as I was there, the Ukrainian sanctions were going down and, you know, all of that started going. And so here the idea that um, ranchers and, and Russians were working together to, to try to build a better grocery store, uh, you know, that, that, that's a surprising thing. Um, mm-hmm. And so I recognized kind of early on that my reporting was being harnessed, uh, certainly by the embassies. Uh, and the Fulbright program is a government program. And so, you know, my work, I was, I was over there being, I was paid to go over there or my grant was paid for by tax money. So mm -hmm, you know, this mm -hmm. is public access information. So it did, you know, I kind of, I did understand that certain of these blogs served a communication purpose, uh, certainly for the embassies. Uh, and vice versa on the Russian side. They, they uh, translated some things and, and did, did the same thing to kind of show that there's still some cultural bridges between our nations, even during these tough political times. Interesting. Um, and what did you, I guess I, I kind of want to jump to the, the sort of bigger lessons and in, in, in what some of our listeners who are working on, you know, communications issues in, in the U.S., um, on, on different topics, but are there are there lessons that you've sort of developed in the work that you're describing, but also the other work that you've done in 
um, Puerto Rico and, and elsewhere um, that you would bring back to the U.S. in terms of how to communicate more effectively about some of these issues or, or other issues in the U.S.? Yep. My reporting in Puerto Rico earlier this year um, was really informative because by the time I'd gotten to Puerto Rico, there'd been much reporting done. And so kind of a prevailing narrative had picked up. And when I say reporting, I'm, I'm, I'm treating that as, as also kind of communications, you know, so how is, how is something right. being represented? And I'm a contrarian by nature. And so when I went to Puerto Rico, I very much did not want to produce something that was going to just blend in, that was going to just take what I had researched and understood as background and then... Um, kind of advance that same narrative. Really, I wanted to kind of check it out for myself. Mm-hmm. And, and so that practice of looking at what was already done helped me identify kind of the ruts that reporters certainly um, tend to fall into, photographers tend to fall into, um, in an attempt not to just continue that. Uh, and that kind Can of the same Can you give an example thing. of that? Sure. Uh, photographically, the Puerto Rican um, challenge or the, the, the Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico has produced some pretty typical photographs. Um, there's going to be the photograph of some, you know, flooded area with a home still there. Well, that flooding's long gone away. Uh, mm-hmm. There's going to be a picture of people getting out water cans, uh, you know, to get water from, uh, from supply trucks. Well, that's only a small part of the island. There's actually a lot of places where the water is working just fine. Um, and so there's, they're kind of the, they're kind of the images that are evocative and they worked once for a photographer. And so the next photographer is going to go try to find the same thing because mm-hmm. it worked. Mm-hmm. But why not try to go find the more interesting one? Uh, why not go try to find the narrative that that's a little bit more surprising? Uh, and kind of taking that approach, I came across a storyline about the use of um, ham radio operators uh, and mm-hmm. the use of battery-powered radios for a communication system and um, the way that landlines, people who had landlines, were able to keep communication even when power went out. So that just kind of led me and kind of pushed me to find um, ways to communicate about this disaster while finding new ground, while finding new stories. That makes sense. Yeah. And how do you, how do you prevent yourself from falling into those ruts, I guess? Yeah. The thing I find with almost every story is there's forces that tend to try to push you into that groove, um, into like a prevailing narrative. And it's tough to resist those. And especially when you fall into, like in a Hurricane Maria um, reporting situation, when you're dealing with public agencies, when you're dealing with government agencies, and you're dealing with the groups that are holding those agencies um, accountable, mm-hmm. all very key conflict points in that story, um, you're kind of getting slotted into a rut. And so what I've found is... Sources from outside of a big organization, kind of independent groups. Uh, I was in Puerto Rico for the Lions Club. That's that's who assigned me to do some reporting there. 
because uh, they had one of their largest disaster grants that they they'd given in years to help out Puerto uh-huh. Rico. It turns out there's Lions Clubs all over that island. Uh, and so these 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 people who themselves had faced great adversity because of the hurricane, they were volunteering their time to help their communities be better. And they were very well plugged in. And they had, other than wanting to boost up Lions Club, they had no, no communication agenda of their own. Uh, they weren't trying to take down the government. They weren't trying to help the government. You know, whatever it was, they just wanted to help people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they were dentists and they were... Um, farmers and they were electricians and they were fantastic sources they could take me anywhere I needed to go and got me off of the path off the off the kind of the beaten path really quickly mm-hmm nice that's awesome and um, I guess so one lesson maybe for people listening is is think about that you know how they get off the beaten path even if it's just with writing a, writing a press release or writing a you know, a Facebook post, like, I think we often fall into this, like, we just kind of recreate the same content over and over. It's, it's a terrible, it's a pet peeve of mine. And there's, there's an incredible, Google Translate is a miracle. It, it, it lets us be able to understand how people are talking about themselves. Mm -hmm. Do this for an experiment. You know, we all go onto Wikipedia, right? I have no shame saying I go on Wikipedia for background information. Mm-hmm. Go to a Wikipedia site. Let's say it's let's say you want to learn about the pyramids of Egypt. Go to the Wikipedia site. And then on the left bar there's going to be a list for all the languages that it's translated into. Well, click on the one that's the local language. That page is being edited by people who are expert in that language and live in Egypt. And mm-hmm. hit translate and you're going to see a whole new Wikipedia page. And they're mm-hmm. going to be talking about the pyramids of Egypt through their own lens. You're going to mm-hmm. find a whole new amount of sources, a whole new amount of um, insights. Um, that's just, I mean, I feel like that's just A, good reporting, and B, just kind of indicative of how how rare it is that you just pick up the phone these days to find out somebody else's point of view in order to create a piece of communications or reporting that's authentic yeah yeah that makes sense well so you've you've been all over and you've done a ton of work in in different places what are some other lessons that that you've drawn just in terms of maybe more broad effective communications are there other things that we haven't talked about yet i now that i've been doing some work for some nonprofits, i've i talk to people who have taken you know they're trained in this in communications this is their their college their college degrees they, they have higher education in this I don't have any of that and I'm starting to see how there is you know when you're writing about a given thing there is the potential for it to have adverse effects um, mm-hmm. and something I find myself wondering often is well then why what is the reason for doing communications if you're worried about what the adverse effect is going to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when I think about that and I look at things that count more as communications than reporting, a lot of it just seems like the preacher conduct, conducting music to the choir. And mm-hmm. I don't understand the point of that. So what I'm always interested in finding is where is communications, what are, what are venues for communicating 
where the writer or photographer or videographer is communicating to a group that they have special access to, but they're delivering information that is new to that audience. Um, mm-hmm. I write in agriculture, okay? I've been writing about agriculture for almost 20 years, and I've written about land conservation. I've written about endangered species. I've written about um, racism. You know, I've written about topics because I know my reader will read me and I have that privileged access to have their eyes and their thoughts and their thinking. I'm delivering information that honestly, maybe they're not getting through there that don't otherwise come into their bubble. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that's um, a big challenge for people these days, right? Because the bubbles are getting uh, either bigger or or stronger or something. <laughs> they don't they don't seem to be going away. They don't. And when I see the conversations going both ways, when I see it happening, it's almost always done well whenever the storyteller is zeroing in on a human experience. Good communications mm-hmm. is always bringing to life the struggle, the odyssey, or the quest that a person is on because you can't refute somebody's experience. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, so I guess the, the other thing I want to just touch on quickly, um, Ryan, is is the, your work as a Fulbright ambassador. And what what does that mean? And, and why what do you do to, to be a Fulbright ambassador? I cheerlead for the Fulbright Association. Uh, mm-hmm. And that means I'm a volunteer. Uh, they, they pay my expenses to go to campuses around the U.S., and I meet with college students. We hold, you know, um, we'll get together in some conference room somewhere on campus, and I'll tell them about how to apply for it. Uh, I'll give them the quick little pitch of, you know, you're about to graduate. What are you going to do? What could be more fun than spending nine months in a country of your choice? Um, you have a cultural immersion experience. Uh You'll gain uh, some real on-the-job training, whether you want to be an English teacher in a university or not, or doing a research project. Really, that's just what gets you there. Uh, Mm -hmm. What you're really going to come away with is some life experience that's irreplaceable. Um, Whereas a college grad who maybe just goes goes to their home, goes back to where they're from and works for a year, those two individuals are going to come out of that year after college with very different skill sets. Mm-hmm. And then along the way, the whole Fulbright game is this is a diplomacy, a people-to-people diplomacy moment. And so by sending college students from the U.S. to Croatia, to Japan, to wherever, and then also bringing Croatian college students here and Japanese students here, we start meeting on the people-to-people level um, so that our diplomatic relationships, not necessarily governmental, um, are intact at a people-to-people level. Uh, and so, yeah, I go around cheerleading for that, trying to make the heart sell. Like, hey, <laughs> you've been paying taxes your whole life. Apply to the Fulbright program. It's tax it's tax funded. Uh, and, and go make the world a better place and go make yourself better. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so, Ryan, we, we, we don't want to take up too much of your time, but the, the way that we typically um, try to wrap these up is by leaving our audience, which, again, is a lot of communicators in different fields, a lot of... Um, you know, nonprofit and, and foundation and other kind of cause related things. Um, 
as they're doing their jobs and trying to do, you know, more effective communications, what's one sort of insight or tool or, or idea that you would leave people with that they could think about as they're doing their jobs in communications? When I'm working on anything, whether it's journalism or a communications piece, oftentimes I think that the audience I care most about, strangely enough, is somebody 50 years in the future. Hmm. Maybe this is my history background, but I want to feel like whatever I put out there right now is going to stand true and it's going to be representative of today's moment so that it can can inform somebody's experience in the future. So many times I benefit through my reporting and work looking back at what somebody wrote 50 years ago. So it's kind of moving that continuum forward and just being a true and accurate representative of today. Hmm. Interesting. How, how do you, not to, to, I don't know if you have a specific techniques for that. How, how do you do that? I mean, how do you try to put yourself in that mindset? Is it, is it, um, is there any way that you've found that works? It works in the story I'm willing to tell. Mm-hmm. It, it works by being able to call BS on myself when I know I'm getting um, a little hyperbolic mm-hmm. or recognizing when maybe I'm so in love with something I'm ignoring a blind spot mm. or to actually look at the blind spot. Or one of my favorite moves in writings, piece I'm working on right now, is to reach back in history and to bring it back into context today. I'm working on a story about these really cool progressive GIS maps. And it just made me wonder, well, how have map makers always done this? Has it always been so mathematical? And mm. I found a really great story written in Discovery Magazine about the mathematics of maps from the 11th century. Like That's oh, a wow. really cool tie-in. Maps have always been a mathematical representation. Mm-hmm. I like that. Interesting. That's kind of my favorite little move. And I yeah. love it when I see other things that do that. Yeah, that's cool. And that that, his, that perspective of history is interesting. I think the way you're describing it is sort of history as as the as truth, right? With, with the with the advantage of perspective and time and um, all that. Yes. Yeah, that's a nice way to put it. And one thing I know a challenge I'll face with this readership for this story about the maps that I'm writing about right now is there's a group of people who don't trust these maps. Mm-hmm. They don't trust mm-hmm. the science of it. They don't trust modeled data. I mean, that's a big, terrifying word, right? Like modeled data. This is a modeled representation of a map. How can I trust that? And so I'm thinking, well, we've been trusting mathematically modeled maps for almost a century, or for almost a century, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. So I'm accomplishing yeah. the goal of buttressing up this idea of these, these are real. These maps are, are real. We can navigate by these. Yeah, it's interesting, and, you know, not to go on too long off topic, but, you know, there might be lessons for people communicating now about issues that could um, be instructive in that way. I hadn't thought about it before, but going back to, um, you know, whether it's a health issue or, or um, climate or any of that stuff, you know, here's, here's something that happened a hundred years ago, because people who don't, who are starting to not believe institutions and, and things like that often look to the past as nostalgia, right? So if you can show them, well, actually people believed or thought the same thing in this past that you, you know, romanticize, 
that might that might be helpful. Yeah, that's very true. And one thing that we biologically create in our erasure of memory is pain is very hard to remember. So mm. we as a society tend to shed our memories of pain. And if mm. what you're communicating about is a pain-based thing, let's just say it's maybe it's a disease, then you know we have this incredible outbreak of measles right now because people aren't vaccinating. We forget about the pain of what it's like to lose thousands of children to measles because we mm -hmm. eradicated it. <laughs> so Right, and we don't want to think about it again. And we don't want to think about it again. And yeah. we're born to parents who we're, we're generations removed from that pain. So as a communicator, to reach back into history and find what that nerve was, because it's still swollen on the pages of history, if you can just find them. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, well, Ryan, we could we could probably talk for a lot longer, but I want <laughs> to respect your evening and um, ap appreciate you taking the time and, and chatting with us about your work. And we'll include a, f a few links to the, the stuff that's out there that you've worked on. And um, yeah, I look forward to hearing more. And thanks for... Uh, for spending time with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I've enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for tuning in to Achieve Great Things. Reach out to us on Twitter at HadawayCom, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Hadaway Communications, or email us at podcast at Hadaway.com. We appreciate your support, and please keep the feedback and comments coming. Until next time, thanks again. <laughs>